Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, good day What's to you. What's going on? Chilling, man, as good per usual. How about you, yourself? Sir. Good day to you, sir. What'd you good say? Day. <laughs> oh, good day. Why, hello there. Why, hello. Well, why, isn't it, is it my good old mate Daniel Abdeljabar? Um, what's up, everyone? I, we are happy that you're joining us today. We are recording on Sunday. I think it's November 6th. And um, it's Saturday. yeah, we're going to get ready to the show. But first things first, before um, you know, we get into the main topic, Danny, have you been, been paying attention to Ethiopia? You know, I haven't. Um, I've been focused on some other shit, but I did see a bunch of chatter in, in our Patreon Slack account. Uh, for it so enlighten me what's been going on well it's very interesting last time we spoke about ethiopia was a couple of weeks ago and the narrative in the news and i just mind everyone like it's it's really hard to decipher what's going on over there just because Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of media blackouts and it's just kind of crazy so uncovering the truth of what's going on in the ground has been pretty difficult but we last left off with the narrative being that um, the Ethiopian government was about to genocide the Tigrayans mm-hmm. yeah. in the northern part of the country. Um, that's the going narrative, yep. So that was the narrative, but now it seems that the Tigrayans, the, the TPLF, has the upper hand where they've uh, formed an alliance with uh, the Oromo Liberation Army rebel group and... Now there's a state of emergency in Ethiopia, in the capital city, Addis Ababa. Mm-hmm. And now there's like multiple narratives that are going on. The U.S. has issued, um, has said, everyone who's an American citizen in Ethiopia, leave now. Like, you have to leave now. That's crazy. Because things are going to get real serious. Um, so it seems like things are uh, getting worse since we've last talked. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine them getting any better. <laughs> but it's just interesting that now, I, and I don't really know what's going on. I need to look at this, for, do my own investigative work to, to really figure out what the narrative is. But just looking at like what Reuters and what um, MSN and a lot of what the mainstream outlets are reporting, at least right now, is that the TPLF now has the edge. And it seems that there could be some type of sacking or... Um, falling of the capital city in Ethiopia by rebels. So I mean, that sounds a little bit ridiculous. The the government forces, along with Eritrea, have been basically cornering the shit out of um, out of the Tigrayans. How the fuck could they possibly make that kind of assault? Well, they're it's because they've they've created alliances with, with other factions that were that were um, anti the federal government there. Yeah, but so, those are more like guerrilla cells, like. 
to take an entire like major capital like Addis Ababa, you need a giant invasion force. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I hope it doesn't happen. I Um, do too, but but also I just doubt that that's even like like logistically possible. (laughs) Like I think this might be a narrative, right? I guess, I guess (laughs) it could be. Yeah, it could absolutely be a narrative. But um, um, Abiy Ahmed, he seems to have a lot of enemies. Well, yeah, the Western pre- the Western press those. is an enemy of his, for example. Yeah. But I mean, even in Africa, even in Ethiopia, uh, you know, some groups are going to feel uh, left out out of the out of the development circle. So that could mean that you know they form alliances with the TPL- TPLF. And I think this Aromo group that has formed an alliance with the the TPLF is actually like it's not the entire obviously population. It's not the entire. Uh, ethnic group of the aroma just you know one militia in it that is that's pretty powerful right of course but i mean i guess we'll we'll see um i hope i hope things don't get too out of control and it's uh yeah man it ends somehow peacefully but if that were to happen that would be a shit show i mean the issue with this is that i just don't understand what the path to peace is there you know like i i mean the the best option is tigray secedes right and that's apparently allowed in the ethiopian constitution or their charter there so maybe that's the solution but you know it's you know it it certainly seems like the the path the peace may be some sort of balkanization because the tplf seems intent and not being ruled by a political party that's not them the Mm -hmm. the the, the tigrayan region and they really do want to keep that autonomy so I, it seems like some type of peace deal where they are given their own state or whatever maybe what happens, but who knows what's going to happen? I, I really, I really don't know. Um, it's a lot of the news coming out is really hard to decipher. There's a lot of propaganda on both sides, but I, I guess we'll we'll pay, be paying attention to that because it certainly seems like a very dangerous part of the world right now. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so we're not talking about that today, though. No, you know we're, we're talking about a different African you guys country today. <laughs> up to date, uh, keeping each other up to date, just because we recently covered it. Um, what we were planning on doing an episode on today was um, a inflation. Because inflation. inflation. I know it's so exciting. Well, it's one of the biggest issues in the country right now. Um, as you guys know, uh, inflation is. It's pretty broadly defined. It's the increase in the cost of living. Generally, it's measured in the terms of a consumer price index, or CPI, and ultimately it's the decline of of your purchasing power. And the primary reason inflation happens is the increase of the supply of money. Well, now Americans are going to their supermarket and they see a jar of uh, Jif peanut butter and it's five dollars and they're like what the hell <laughs> yeah i mean at the rate that we're going that comment probably isn't going to age very well we'll probably come back and listen to this 10 years from now and think that five dollars for a jar of jiffy is a steal so <laughs> i know well imagine saying somebody that i mean i when i see like 360 in my mm-hmm. local supermarket for jiff peanut butter i'm like oh great 360 it's not that bad 
and then I'll buy. I don't even know what the going rate for Jiffy is, to be honest. I don't buy it's that something shit, like three sixty. I don't know what the price is outside of New York. We also live in New York. Yeah, where, where everything is expensive. <laughs> everything is just super expensive for no reason. Like if you go outside, like a six pack of beer, um, mm-hmm. of you of just like crappy beer too is twelve bucks. Right. At like a night, like at a supermarket, that's not just like a local bodega that upcharges. It's it's like still twelve bucks for like Coors Light. If you go right. outside, if you go anywhere outside in in New York, you know that's exponentially lower. Like you get nice right. beer for that much money, right? Um, but yeah, inflation is definitely seems to be uh, real, and according to data from the New York Federal Reserve. And their survey of consumer expectations, it shows that short and medium term inflation expectations are now rising to their highest yeah. levels since the inception of the survey uh, that was in 2013. And what this survey basically said is that Americans are expecting the price of food to rise by 7% over the next 12 months and then their rent to go up 9%, which I hope that doesn't happen. Now, this is a big deal because historically, when inflation expectations rise this quickly, it's it's um, sustained, right? And that it's it's lasts for years. It's not transitory. And um, Jerome Powell, uh, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is you know always claiming that this inflation is is transitory, and it certainly doesn't seem that way. And now. Well, even the Fed. Let me just go back. Even the Fed has said uh, for the for the last five months, inflation has been running twice the Fed's uh, target, which I think was two percent. Hmm. So now people are talking about hyperinflation. Like you know, that's a conversation that always comes up whenever there's inflation. Like, oh my God, is there going to be hyperinflation? And hyperinflation, in a nutshell, is when price increases. Um, when when price increases accelerate so fast that it makes the currency worthless. Right. Regular so, inflation is fine and, and almost expected, but the hyper part is is not. Well, hyper, <laughs> like hypersonic missiles. Like regular missiles are fine when they hit you, but you know, <laughs> hypersonic missiles, when they hit you, it's a lot worse. Yeah. So um, the most common definitions of hyperinflation that you should know, this is, this is like how we define it. It's rising prices by more than 50% per month or when price rises reach an annual rate of 100% in any year so um you know right now a lot of different famous money managers are you know are saying hyperinflation is happening um or it's about to happen and then jack dorsey the other day you know he he tweeted something about being on the verge of hyperinflation i don't know if you saw that yeah i did like, jack dorsey tweets hyperinflation mm-hmm. i think it's because he buys you know he owns a lot of bitcoin yeah no, totally. He he wants so, to jack up the the, the a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of I mean a lot of that rhetoric I do suspect it comes from like the people who are you know trying to push these uh, cryptos like Bitcoin and stuff like that. Um, even gold salesmen, you know, uh, which I purchase a lot. But it's the question is you know is the U.S. on the verge of hyperinflation? I don't know. I, I really don't know if we're on the verge of hyperinflation. I don't think there'll be runaway hyperinflation uh, over the next year or over the next two years. But who knows what what can happen with all of our spending bills? It's certainly a fear of mine. 
And um, it's certainly what I'm probably scared most of happening in this country. Sure. Um, I used the analogy the other day when we were speaking about our last hyperinflation episode, the White Walkers. Right. Like, that's how I look at it. I look at hyperinflation of, like, the White Walkers. There's all this political bargaining and infighting and scheming and King's Landing and in other parts of Westeros and uh, what's the other continent in Game of Thrones? Essos. Essos. All this political scheming and stuff like that. And then you see, then it cuts to the White Walkers just, you know. Nobody's marching, paying attention to <laughs> yeah. Marching. And then finally they take over that one town. And um, that's how I see, that's how I look at it. But then again, you know, that last season of Game of Thrones, White Walkers ended up being a big letdown. They won battle and you're like, okay, what the hell? We can this only hope that inflation goes the same route as the, the White Night Walkers. King. This is the Night King. This is the Night King. He goes yeah. down in one shot. Like, no right. main character. You didn't even kill any main characters. Only tertiary characters died. I guess except yeah. Theon, right? Theon was the most well, prevalent character to die. He, yeah, he was He was prepped to die, though. He was, you know. He was ready to die, yeah. Right. I don't know. Anyone else die that was important in Game of Thrones? I don't think and, so, but I but I also think we're getting a little bit off topic here. So. Okay, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. It's it's the first time listening. This show can turn can around that. or go make a one eighty very quickly. We can, mm-hmm. we might be talking about Star Wars for the next hours. Who knows? It's possible or PlayStation, PlayStation. But um, okay, so just to give you some background on why we're doing this. So we did an episode about two months ago on hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Germany post World War One. And to give you an example of how bad it was, in November of 1923 in Berlin, a loaf of bread was 428 billion marks. That's a lot of marks. It's a lot of marks. It's a lot of marks. It's Mark Wahlberg. It's Mark Hamill. So um, the Reichsbank had issued 496.5 quintillion marks each of which had fallen to one trillionth of its 1914 gold value. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everything in the Weimar, the, the Weimar Republic was costing trillions of marks. So to get out of hyperinflation, they had to introduce a new currency called the Rettenmark that was fixed to the value of gold. Now, today, we're going to be talking about probably the second most famous case of hyperinflation or probably top three most cases top um, three for sure weimar republic uh hungary and then zimbabwe in the late 2000s zimbabwe. everyone knows about the zimbabwe economic collapse in the late 2000s or maybe they don't and they're about to <laughs> or maybe they're about to well it's a real fascinating case study so uh we want to talk about it today so Zimbabwe is the first country in the 21st century to, to hyperinflate, and it was devastating. Mm-hmm. In February 2007, Zimbabwe's inflation rate toppled 50% per month, which is the minimum rate required to, to qualify as hyperinflation, and from there it just soared. So in November of 2008, inflation reached an annualized rate, wait for it, 89.7 sextillion percent. That's, that's 89.7 sextillion percent. Didn't even know that was a number. Did not know that was a number either. 
So sextillion is a number with seven commas. Yeah, said another way, that's an eight nine seven with twenty zeros after it. <laughs> twenty zeros. So that is the rate of their annualized inflation. Jesus. So how the hell does that happen? That's the question. Like, what the hell was going on in that economic system? <laughs> so that's what we want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. The, the make that outrageous number of uh, reality. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the reasons, well, this wasn't the reason. This was the consequence. They were issuing $100 trillion notes. Yeah. And those $100 trillion notes were worth about 40 U.S. cents. It was the, technically the second highest inflation in history, and that's second to post-war Hungary, which now that I say that out loud, we should probably do our next episode on inflation about that one. Um, like a day in the life of the Zimbabwean at the time was like this. You'd, you'd wake up early in the morning to go wait in line at an ATM, and on a good day, you could you know withdraw the equivalent of two to three U.S. dollars, which was probably like, I don't know, quad, like a quadrillion zimbabwean dollars it's just something ridiculous right um and or or more likely you'd probably find out that there was no more money in the atm machine because they just can only hold so much um and it was practically costing more money to print the money than the money was worth itself at the time the the government was spending something like five hundred thousand dollars per week to print new bills which were sent over from germany but by the time they got the shipment in the money was already worthless which is also hilarious. Uh, and, you know, all of this created new problems. Uh, so people just stopped going to work. Uh, it just wasn't worth it. Some some folks' annual salary wasn't enough to cover the bus fare home. So why would they go? Um, you know, we're talking about economic ruin here, and it leads to the de facto dollarization of the Zimbabwean economy. You know, when the inflation hit 230 billion percent, the government declared the U.S. dollar as its official currency. Uh, other currencies that were used were the uh, South African rand, the British pound, Indian rupee, Chinese yuan, and of course the euro. They were also all used as legal tender uh, simultaneously with these ridiculous $100 trillion Zimbabwean dollars. Um, but that also made it super confusing to buy things because everything had different exchange rates and those exchange rates were changing pretty rapidly. So buying things wasn't, you know, consistently priced right like you might get a better deal if you used a euro than you would you know a yuan as an example so it got very very confusing very quickly what's interesting is you can buy zimbabwe trillion dollar notes on ebay if you want yep. to and actually i was going to say that later but now that we've mentioned it uh some i actually looked it up and there's like 100 trillion dollar um zimbabwean notes going for like two three hundred bucks on ebay right now which is worth way more than they're actually worth which is hilarious um it's it's just like if you wanted to make a quick you know flip you could just take those notes that you had that were basically worthless i mean leave it to the internet to buy useless shit but like you know i kind of want to buy one (laughs) it's a collector's item like you just hang it up with zimbabwe zimbabwe notes of a hundred trillion dollar a hundred trillion zimbabwe dollars it's just it's just funny to have yeah, um, should, but you know, you heard one. stories about like people using the currency as toilet paper and shit like that. Like it was yeah, cheaper. Th- like the the currency like that, was yeah. cheaper than the than the actual toilet paper, so that's what they used. Um, so how did this happen? Well, you know, most of it is just extreme corruption, 
and uh, you know things like reckless spending and and pacifying different disgruntled social groups and um, pointless military adventures and uh, seizures of commercial farms. Uh, but l- let's hit the background. So Zimbabwe used to be a British colony called Rhodesia. Well, I guess it was technically, it was technically it was, South yeah, Rhodesia. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but in, in 1893, Zimbabwe was colonized by British settlers, and they were led by a mining magnate named Cecil Rhodes. So Cecil Rhodes was sponsored by the British government. Right. And, and the draw for the colonization here was the fact that Zimbabwe had an abundance of gold, platinum, coal, and diamonds, which are all very lucrative resources for a late 19th century empire. Yeah, and, and because of the foreign capital combined with, um, you know, the technical skills of um, Rhodesia, Rhodesia had a high standard of living compared to other African countries. Well, not exactly for everyone, though. The territory was mostly entirely run by and exploited by a small white minority, but now we're just yeah, absolutely <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was definitely yeah. it was it was a racial state, but um, right. compared to other African countries, there was a higher standard of living in Rhodesia. For sure. For sure. Um, now, 1965, Rhodesia becomes an independent country from Britain. Well, they were not formally recognized by the rest of the world, but you know they carved out their own nation state and you know what they become is one of the two independent african states that was governed by a white minority so the other being south africa mm-hmm. so after rhodesia's uh, independence from the british empire for the next 15 years there was a lot of political turmoil and violence you know mainly due to these these race politics you know what's known as the rhodesian bush war right and and there were two native political factions that formed out of this conflict uh, ZANU, Z-A-N-U, that was the Zimbabwean African People's Union, and they were backed by the Soviet Union, and ZAPU, uh, Z-A-P-U, uh, the National Union, uh, which was backed by Maoist China. And uh, basically, once Zimbabwe declared their independence in 1980, uh, the National Union won out, and Robert Mugabe was elected prime minister. Mugabe, by the way, was a total piece of shit. Uh, he immediately consolidates power. Uh, so his army was trained uh, under North Korea's Kim Il-sung at the time, believe it or not. And they immediately yeah. go out and start killing dissidents, which is, you know, just par for the course for dictators. Uh, you know, a couple other things he did. He gave himself the power to dissolve parliament, declare martial law. He got rid of term limits. Uh, and he ruled for about 37 years, which is four short of Africa's rec- record, which is interesting. Um, one fun fact he was interviewed once, and he let slip that uh, his opponent won 73% of the vote, and then he immediately corrected himself, uh, which is so ridiculous, it's actually kind of funny. So, yeah, Mugabe is—you uh, should read a really funny article about Mugabe is Justin Ramondo's. Justin Ramondo wrote an article about um, him going to a conference, and Mugabe was a speaker there. Mm-hmm. And he got really upset. He's like, I'm not, I'm not um, attending, like, I'm not speaking at this conference when that despot's here. Mm-hmm. And it's just this really funny article about him. Like, just, <laughs> it's, type in, just look on Google if you want to listen, read this. It's Justin Ramondo Mugabe. But, uh, yeah, he, he um, would call this era the, 
the third uh, Chimarunga. I think that's how it's pronounced. Chimichanga. <laughs> I think it's Chimarunga. It's Chimarunga. And, I'm just fucking around. It, it's super, and, super similar to the Palestinian Intifada, actually. You yeah. You think of it the same way. But yeah, the, I guess the first Chimarunga was the revolt against, they had a revolt against the British in the, in the late 19th century. And then the second was the Rhodesian Bush War. And then this third period, Mugabe called the third Chimarunga. And it was supposed to be the final stage in Zimbabwe's battle against neo-colonialists. Mm-hmm. So you can see why the, the white people there were, were uncomfortable yeah. with Mugabe. And this to lay out the context. So even after, after Zimbabwe's independence, whites were about 5% of the population, but they also owned 80% of the land. Mm-hmm. While the majority Native Africans were left with really just kind of the common lands that were unerable. You couldn't really grow anything. So, um, for context, throughout the colonial history history of Zimbabwe and through the 80s and 90s, um, Zimbabwe's business was large-scale um, agricultural exporting. Like, they were, uh, yep. you know, the commercial farming sector had been one of the main sources of Zimbabwe's economic wealth. Yep, making corn it, and tobacco, actually. That was yeah. the two cash crops. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were a net exporter. And it employed, their commercial farming industry employed about 400,000 workers. Hmm. However, during this period, most of the country's most productive farmland, it belonged to the white minority. So Mugabe, he began efforts at land reform. So white farmers were required to transfer land to, um, you know, the African, um, you know, black Zimbabweans. So this is what sets up Zimbabwe's hyperinflation situation. Right. And, and I have to give a little bit of context to that because, you know, as said, I think it makes it sound like the black Zimbabweans were the cause of the inflation. I think that's a little problematic. Yeah, um, I'm not saying that. I'm saying Yeah, of course. I just want to clear that up for up. anyone's just want to clear that up for the folks that come in the uh, review section and pretend like we're saying that it's their fault. Um, in 2000, Mugabe's you know, does start doing this program, right? Beginning forcibly seizing land from the white farmers for the redistribution. And, and initially he uh, pitches this as a, um, as a way to correct for the colonialism's unjust past. I'm using like super hard air quotes here because really, you know, it's, it's just a play to get political support uh, so that he can consolidate power for himself. And, you know, the, the farmers he put in place uh, when he seized that land in more more often than not, they had little to no farming experience. Sometimes they didn't even want to farm at all. Uh, and he also gave a lot of land to his political cronies, who obviously didn't know shit about farming either. Uh, and to top it all off, any of the experienced white farmers were actually fleeing the country because Mugabe's military were basically using lethal force at times to remove them. You know, so I think this is less about the race of the farmers and more about Mugabe's violent and honestly. It has nothing to do with the race policy, of the farmers. Right? It has everything to do with just the the policies exactly, of exactly. removing people who because um, all right, here's the thing with farming. Commercial farming is a very, very difficult thing to do. It's not very. easy. Yeah. And it's it's very very hard to replace the labor. For uh, sure. You know. So For sure. During I just wanted to make that absolutely Union. clear in the show. Of course, you know, yeah, just, of course. Yeah, Obviously, people are gonna, you know, take, take things way. and hear and hear yeah. and hear things, hear what they want to 
Right. Or all the racists are going to hear a dog whistle of some kind. Like, yeah, yeah, they can't, they can't farm. Fuck you. <laughs> but it's just, it was just, it's just, all right. So the Soviet Union had the same issue mm-hmm. when they would right. seize farm, when they would see, uh, seize uh, private farms and uh, put them under, you know, either a collective or uh, give them to somebody else. People wouldn't know how to tend the land. So it's a really right. big issue. It's one right. of the reasons for the Holdemore. It's one of the big. Um, it's one of the issues with transferring commercial farmland because uh, it could really, it could really turn into a, a very bad situation if you're if you're removing that knowledge from the farm because it takes generations to grow to learn right. how to grow. It takes like gen- right. it's like a generational skill that develops over time. That's right. And it's um, if I mean, you as- don't have the knowledge and the skill to do it, it's 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 real tough. Like but like remember Bloomberg. During the election, he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I know how to farm. You just put a seed and it grows. And people are like, what the hell is the matter with you? Like, how yeah. bad of a politician are you? Like, what right. are you? Like, how are you a billionaire, a mm-hmm. mega billionaire, and own all this stuff and were, was mayor and be that tone deaf of a politician? Um, well, but look, I, I, I mean, as a side note, this is not anything like that's new, right? So I've been trying to make this connection in my head. Uh, as I was doing the, the research with land distribution and uh, some of the reforms that we talked about, you know, months ago uh, when we talked about the Chin Empire, uh, because they did similar things as well, where the Chin took uh, aristocratic, aristocratic lands from them, you know, basically in order to suppress the aristocratic power. But the result of this was that they forced peasants to go to those lands to farm who didn't know how to fucking farm. And um, those lands were also not very good for growing rice and wheat, and they had to get real creative with their farming, but the output was super low, and the taxes were still super high, so it didn't work out. Um, And uh, there's definitely something there. I really haven't worked out the exact connection, but I think generally, though, like you were saying, the land distribution doesn't tend to work out very well, even when the intention is to correct for historical wrongdoings. Um, and most of the times these programs don't put in the work of making sure that the people who inherit these lands actually have the skill and the infrastructure, frankly, to maximize that agricultural output. I think the closest thing I can think of, like historically speaking, was the Japanese taika land reforms during the Yamato period, which we also talked about, uh, where they nationalized land and patties were uh, allocated by the government. Uh, and pretty much every six years, uh, all free adult males uh, received about 0.3 acres and females even got land they got 0.2 acres um that actually did result in a measurable population growth and a higher agricultural output but i think there that's more of an exception than the rule i think generally speaking it doesn't work out very well and in the case of zimbabwe doing this land reform killed both zimbabwe's economy and its food supply and as soon as the farms became less productive the demand for the food rose and so did the prices super fast. And at this point, daily inflation reaches 98%. And, you know, the, the economy just totally collapses. Some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. This was recent. And he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States. Pretty crazy story. And I'll leave you to create your own jokes about that but uh we have some other breaking news as well and that's harry's razors so harry's razors they're carving their own path in grooming to give you a better designed and better value grooming products 
Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products, so they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors, and they would get dull right away. And often, I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, hairy shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face, and uh, my face feels nice and smooth. Also, their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. They're German engineer blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half is what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Well, I have this... So, I have this paper that um, it's a paper, and I'm going to be quoting uh, Jason Coomer and Thomas Grushenthaler. You see the name right <laughs> good here. Try. Yeah, dude, good try. Yeah, uh, Gstraunthaler. Is that German? It, it's Austrian, probably. But uh, same, that's same just, thing. it's just a weird German construction. Yeah. Well, sorry, I'm, I'm mispronouncing the name, but I mispronounced everything. No, um, dude, the that paper one's is called, legitimately hard. <laughs> yeah, the paper is called the the hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, and it was published in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. Oh, big surprise! You're quoting a you're quoting a paper that was written by an Austrian economist. Yeah, well, it is what it is. You guys know who I am by this point. <laughs> um, all right, but and they have a disclaimer in this paper that the reliable data is often unavailable. So they're using mostly IMF and then United Nation numbers and then some information from the uh, Zimbabwe uh, Federal Bank, Central Bank. But most of it is just from the IMF and the the UN. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to go through the paper and then we can kind of just throw in points in here and and see what's interesting. Because um, this is what probably the most thorough uh, paper that I've I've seen covering this, covering Zimbabwe's hyperinflation. So, in the second decade of its independence, the Zimbabwean government launched an economic reform program essential in liberalizing the economy and dealing with the structural impotence to growth. However, fiscal policy was weak and monetary policy unsteady during the time period, and the country suffered from two serious droughts which affected Zimbabwe's agriculture, its primary economic industry. 
A land reform had been a highly contentious issue since independence as the majority of prime agriculture land was owned by about 4,000 white commercial farmers, while the indigenous population continued to engage in subsistence farming. So allegedly, this um, land reform act, the first, there was a couple different land reform acts, and the first version of it was relatively reasonable. I'm not saying it was right, but it was relatively reasonable to the later ones that came, come after it. Mm-hmm. And it required things like fair compensation and the farmland had to be underutilized. So they weren't just grabbing farms like there had to be, you know, some type of precedent being like, OK, you're not even using the farm and things like that. Right. But it makes sense. From, I mean, from it's there, not right, but it still makes sense. Yeah, it was a little more pol- politically tactful. But then it escalated from there in the second half of 1997 because the government, what they do is that they announced a new compensation and pension plan for war veterans. So war veterans of the uh, of the Rhodesian Bush War, mm-hmm. their independence struggle. And the, these payouts apply to about 60,000 war veterans and they were to receive a payment of 50,000 Zimbabwe dollars alongside a monthly pension that was equivalent to $125. So what this this um, this pension plan did, this payout to war veterans did, it immediately inflated the budget by 55% on the previous year. Hmm. Now, the war veterans were still not very happy about this because they wanted to, what they actually wanted was the land reform program. So in, in 1997, November, Mugabe responds to these pressures and he announces plans for the um, you know, compulsory a- acquisition of white-owned commercial farms. Thus, there was 1,400 commercial farms that were put up to sale. So what this does, the reaction is, is that it scares foreign investors because Zimbabwe lacked the, the budget and the financing for both this pension plan, and it also lacked the budget and financing for the land acquisition process because they have to buy them. You know what I mean? Like they have to compensate the people for the farms because they're essentially nationalizing them and the government is buying the farms and then they're they're redistributing to other people. And, you know, when there's distribution like that too, it's not the most needy people anyway. Let's just say if you were given handouts and stuff, you're just giving it to people who are friends with Mugabe. Like right. you're, it's it's a political cronyism. That's what the distribution is. You know, it's not to serve some higher cause or it's well intentioned. It's just to be like, hey, look, I got my political pals. Um, we we have power. Who wants some land? Who wants some <laughs> land? You get a farm. You get a farm. You get a farm. But to right. his pals. And right. I I listened to some interviews too, and it, a lot of it was like, uh, Mugabe wasn't dumb. He wasn't like a dummy. It was more of like internal pressure. Um, from his his cronies who who wanted stuff who wanted who wanted his property, right? But um, all right, so to, to to go back, there's a there's a flight of capital, and the Zimbabwe dollar crashes in November fourteenth, nineteen ninety seven, and mm-hmm. this caused the government to monetize their debt because there was already political chaos and riots because you know we're going through an unstable time so 
the last thing that you can do when you're going through political chaos and riots is say, okay, I got an idea. Why don't we pay? You have your taxes are going to raise, right? One of the reasons why what we discussed in our episode about the Weimar Republic's hyperinflation is that the whole World War One was financed without raising taxes. World War One was completely financed by the printing of money. Right. It wasn't financed by tax taxes, because I mean that's not politically savvy to do. Nope. Like, hey, you have to pay for this war. I mean, Germans were an aggressive party in the war, so it's 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 uh, that's how that you know that that was probably the starting point in the story for the hyperinflation that goes on in the Weimar Republic, the war, World War One, um, monetizing the debt, and you know what debt monetization is is when the government borrows money from the central bank to finance public spending instead of selling bonds to private investors or raising taxes so because prices were rising the government introduced price controls and what they accused the uh, business class or you know industries that were raising their prices they said they were profiteering so, also, to make matters worse, Zimbabwe gets into a military conflict in the DRC. Right. So, they, were, they sent like around 10,000 troops to uh, the Congo, who was under attack by um, Rwandan and Ugandan-backed rebels. And there was no budget either for their military endeavors. So, because of these uh, controversial activities, foreign donors started to lack or scale back their assistance. And when I say right. for, uh, foreign donors, I mean governments and foreign aid, along with the IMF. So they were like... Right, because they were just spending their money pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. And they were also doing controversial stuff. You know, it's right. hard to give foreign aid when, when there's a kind of aggressive policies going on. So, all right, I'm going to quote from this paper again. So in June 2000, a... Fast-track resettlement program was announced by the government covering 5 million hectares. Is it hectares? Hectares. 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 Okay. Sorry, everyone. Mm -hmm. Covering 5 million hectares and 150,000 families in 2000, compared with the 3.3 million hectares and 73,000 families resettled since independence. In the process, the state listed 2,455 farms for acquisition. In terms of the announcement, the government would provide compensation for any capital improvements to the land, but not for the land itself. So prior to that, though, I think it's important to note, a lot of these farms were actually being invaded. Like people would, you know, they would, a lot of these war veterans would just go and say, hey, this is my farm. <laughs> Leave, <Yeah>. you got to go. <laughs> right. So if, and then a few months later, um, the RBZ... So the Central Bank of Zimbabwe announced a 24% devaluation of the Zimbabwe dollar. So it introduced a, a crawling peg exchange regime. And what crawling pegs are used to provide exchange rate stability between trading partners. So specifically when there's a, like a weakness in a currency. So typically a crawling pegs are established by um, like a developing country who's currencies are linked to the US dollar or or even the euro. 
So that's what crawling pegs are used for. Um, all right. Despite subsequent adjustments, however, the RBZ failed to adequately adjust the exchange rate, and the currency was still significantly over overvalued by, with the parallel market about 25% more depreciated than the official rate. So whenever you hear the word parallel market, what that code word is for black market. Right. So that means that they're trading in another currency that they're not supposed to be trading in. That's what parallel mm -hmm. market means. It means black market. Inflation accelerated after mid-2001. Government borrowed from the RBZ approach the statutory limit of 20% of the previous year's revenue and interest rates remained sharply negative in real terms. The government began to enforce a requirement that 45% of institutional investors' portfolios be held in low-yielding, longer-term government securities. This, together with the collapse of interest rates, weakened the financial positions of insurance companies, pensions funds, and banks. Institutional portfolios became subject to a steady and methodical process of confiscation. The IMF mission observed that there was no evidence to suggest that the government strategy had been successful, as businesses' fixed investments in construction had essentially ceased. Rather, the negative real interest rates had caused asset substitution away from money market instruments, creating bubbles in equity and residential real estate prices. These pricing bubbles were exuberated by the emergence of a growing class of speculators with access to bank loans at negative rates of interest. In particular, mm -hmm. the RBC's subsidized credit scheme added liquidity to the financial system, helping to fuel the asset price bubble as the low-cost resources had been used in part by exporters to buy shares of the Zimbabwe stock exchange or real estate. So, you know, the asset bubbles exist when the market prices trade far higher than the fundamental says. And expansion of the supply of money and credit in an economy, it provides the fuel for these bubbles, like what we see right now, like what we see right. in the American stock market right now, like the bubbles that are forming up. Um, um, you know, Kathy Woods, the other day, she sold a bunch of shares of Tesla. Um, seeing Looks that like shit's going to pop. Maybe. As I take a sip of water. Ooh. Um, but yeah, why wouldn't you loan out? Why wouldn't you take a loan out with no interest rates? Also, you know, negative real interest rates encourage an attitude of buy now rather than wait. Right. You know, which which further contributes to an acceleration of inflation. All right. So as inflation continued to spiral, the government continued to treat it as a result of profiteering rather than a consequence of the RBZ's inappropriately loose monetary policies. The government introduced price controls in an attempt to contain inflation, particularly in the prices of key staples, in order to control the pricing of maize and wheat. The Grain Marketing Board was reestablished as a monopoly in June. Then, from October 10th, the wholesale and retail prices of basic commodities and foods came under control, government control, resulting in immediate shortages of these commodities. So um, what they're saying is that in an effort to please the masses, the government reintroduced price controls and um, they started shifting its rhetoric, rhetoric against the industry and blamed it for profiteering. So price controls are meant to make things more affordable, right? For right. consumers. Mm -hmm. And you know what they're imposed on? They're imposed uh, on food. 
and usually energy products. That's usually what right. um, you use price controls on. Sometimes they're meant to curb inflation. And although the reasons for price controls may be um, you know, affordability and economic stability, when you see some things that are outrageously priced, you know, there's a lot of political pressure to for the government to do something. But they typically have the opposite effect. The immediate consequence of these price controls were shortages of these basic commodities. Right, and that's because the cost of creating or, you know, uh, farming doesn't go down just because the price is tacked to, you know, uh, a specific amount, right? So yeah, like if exactly. a pound of if a pound of corn is uh, I don't know, 10 bucks or something like that, just using some fake numbers, but uh, and the government says it has to be $10, but it actually costs $11 to make that, you know, because you have to pay all the workers and you have to like, you know, do water and all this other shit that goes into, you know, producing, shipping and processing all this food, you know, then that means that, you know, we're at a negative number, so production has to go down because it's too expensive to produce and you're not getting as high yield anymore uh, out of it. So it creates a negative incentive on the industry, uh, which, you know, to your point, you know, now they, they start, you know, using this rhetoric against industry and blaming them from profiteering. And, you know, perhaps it is true that they were profiteering, but I think that, it, you know, the clear picture is that they're just had really shitty monetary policy, decided to keep printing a bunch of money. And that's why inflation happened. And therefore, you know, all these problems, you know, they're just pointing the finger at the wrong place at this point. I mean, you know how China was, uh, was, uh, saved. So, you know, I don't want to go too off on a tangent, but I think that, um, this is kind of an important thing that we never discuss. So in China, under Mao's regime in China was probably one of the worst events in human history. Mao's Mm -hmm. regime from post-World War uh, two to you know when he ultimately died, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. You, people would starve. Was, there was mass starvation. People were like invading other farms and cannibalizing, like eating each other. Like we're talking about a level of like famine and death that was huge. Like that was so destruction destructive. What what changed China was that you know Milton Fre- they sent Milton Freeman over and they're like, hey man. He went to, um, <clears throat> he was like to uh, Deng Xiaoping. He was like, hey, man, you need prices. What are you doing? You need fucking prices. Like, this is why mm-hmm. you're, this is why the country is starving because you don't have prices. And then they implemented prices and like mm-hmm. probably the greatest miracle in the history of the world happened in the 1980s right. in China when right. they started um, changing their monetary system and they started being more business friendly Obviously, China has not like that. There's still the totalitarian elements, but like, come on, man, that is like the greatest upgrade in human living standards of all time, ever. And all you had in to history do is put a price tag on history, shit. <laughs> when they when they started making those reforms, yeah, China is still um, authoritarian and totalitarian. But you know what? Like, take wins when you can get them. Sometimes you know, like that was a huge. Right great event in the 1980s lifted lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty for that so so um all right that's a side note back to this paper so all right from mid-october the rbz effectively returned to a fixed exchange rate regime so a fixed exchange rate is when a country 
uh, will tie its currency to another country's currency uh, or the price of gold. So the purpose of this, of a fixed exchange rate system, is to keep a currency's value within a narrow band. And fixed rates provide greater um, certainty for exporters and importers. And what they also do is they help maintain low inflation, which keep interest rates down and and uh, stimulates trade and investment. Um, like look at the Bretton Woods system. So you know from the end of the World War II to the early 1970s, the Bretton Woods Agreement meant that foreign exchange rates were pegged to the value of the U.S. dollar, which was fixed to the price of gold. But you know that obviously. When the, when the Europeans started asking for their gold, Nixon was like, you can't have your gold. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You, you can't have your gold. No. <laughs> nope. Uh-uh. We're not gold standard. I got to work on my Nixon impression. Do you have a good one? Oh. The Shaw. The Shaw. We gotta attack. We gotta like double team and like find the presidents we're good at emulating, and uh, yeah, and and to stick with that. I think I've my Biden impression is getting better. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think so too. My Biden impression is just like what? No, <laughs> no democracies. What? What did you say? All right, whatever. Sorry. Um, <laughs> told you i mean we're staying somewhat on track to this topic which i think is achievement right. in itself so but you gotta spice note. things up sometimes you gotta spice slight. things up we're talking about fucking monetary policy <sighs> like we have to find ways to make this shit interesting right right you guys we agree listening guys. Like, we're basically we were just reading like, from a from well inflation paper right now <laughs> so if we, we were just if we were just like the purpose of fixed exchange rates is to keep a <laughs> currency value with a narrow band. Don't you think that you would fall asleep by now? Mm-hmm. I'm addressing something that I don't know if it's an actual complaint or not. Yeah. Um, okay. Maybe you guys are f- incredibly fascinated by this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe you guys are like, why are you guys going on this rant? Because it's Saturday, and Saturday's for the boys. All right, um... In mid-November 2002, the price controls on selected food items that were introduced in October 2001 were broadened in scope and extended to a six-month of price freeze. With this move, nearly 70% of the items in the consumer price index basket became subject to administered pricing, making official inflationary figures unreliable. The controlled prices were often below production costs, forcing many companies to close contributing to a decline in employment in, in the informal sector. As the IMF mission observed, this main impact of the controls was to drive up prices in the informal markets. At the same time, the government attempted to clamp down on the parallel market exchange rate, the premium on which had reached as high as 2,900% during the year. Exchange controls were tightened and foreign exchange bureaus were closed, leaving banks as the only authorized dealers in foreign exchange. Surrender requirements were further increased to 50%, while the balance retained by exporters had to be de- deposited with the RBZ, with utilization limited to a priority list and subject to RBZ approval. So this results in uh, further decline at the foreign exchange. And in late 2002, um, Agriculture Minister Joseph Mady, 
declared the land grab to be over, stating that the government had seized 35 million acres of land from white farmers. By the end of the year, almost all white-owned farms had been designated for acquisition by the state, and by the beginning of 2003, the majority of farmers had left their farms in compliance with the eviction orders. The decline in agricultural production began to negatively affect manufacturing sector, which was predominantly agriculture-based. So yeah, like we were just talking before, when you transfer farmland from one person to another, it, it's always hard because you know the lack of technical skills and things like that. Um, now, so in January, the authorities they end up revising their approach to these price controls, and they start issuing um, they start issuing prices and then in incomes uh, like stabilization protocols. So they began to raise interest rates, but the rates still remained um, negative. In, in real terms. Mm-hmm. And then on May 6th, the further price adjustments, including an easing of price controls, were announced. So prices were liberalized, but made subject to the surveillance by the government. And um, as this paper says, at the end of May, RBZ Governor Sumba went to leave until his retirement at the expiration of his term at the end of July. Sumba left a legacy of money creation by the end of 2003. Broad money had risen to three That's a big number. This big, pretty big number right here. Um, three thousand two hundred and forty point so, three billion dollars. Yeah, from fifty six point six billion dollars at the end of nineteen ninety eight. So mm-hmm. um, by this stage, Zimbabwe was also completely cut off from foreign aid, and um, the effect of the foreign currency uh, short, uh, shortages climaxed during two thousand three. So there was a shortage in banknotes developed, and then the RBZ did not have the hard currency necessary to import paper and ink required for the printing of the banknotes. Right, so, and that's when they start doing it offshore in Germany, actually. Yeah. Uh, so in August, there was a countrywide bank run on uh, depositors attempted to access their cash, threatening public order. So this is interesting because this recently happened in Lebanon. Um, we actually did. So last year, this happened in Lebanon, um, where you know there's a big financial crisis, and this is this is how it started with depositors. They had these crazy interest rates in the bank, where you could just put your money in a in a, like a checking account, and you got like 14 percent interest. Like, that's awesome, right? Like, hey, imagine right. going to your Chase, your Bank of America, and you put you have 14 percent interest rates on your on your deposited money. How fucking awesome would that be, right? Well. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't awesome because what happened is that they were running a Ponzi scheme. The bank was a giant Ponzi scheme in Lebanon. And then people went to go get their money. And they're like, sorry, we don't have your money. Sorry. And that's what happened in Lebanon last year um, around the summer in August. Um, and they're still going through a really bad financial crisis. Like right now, pretty much everything is purchased by food stamps. Um, yep. It's bad. Um, all right. Anti-riot police were sent to banks to quell angry members of the public unable to withdraw their savings. The subsidized credit scheme continued in 2003, driving the acceleration in broad money growth. The availability of cheap credit as well as consumer attempts to hedge against inflation per- uh, perpetuated the pricing bubbles in stock and real estate. The combination of low interest rates and rising inflation caused a chronic erosion of the capital base of Zimbabwe's bank with the asset base of Zimbabwe's banking system declining by 40% in real terms in 2003. On December 2003, Gideon Gano took over as a governor of the Reserve Bank. He immediately announced measures to tighten money conditions 
the news drove up the interbank rates and caused the prices of shares in real estate to plunge. The RBC raised the interest rate sharply in the first quarter of 2004, and it reached a peak of 5,240% and, um, annual rate in March 2004 as a result of monetary tightening inflation, which had increased to a peak of 223% in January 2004, uh, decelerating sharply to around 130% at the end of 2004. So um, the pace of economic deterioration, it starts to pick up again later in 2005. So inflation stabilized around 135% in early 2005. Uh, before picking up again at 100 uh, at 160% in June, so uh, the parallel market premium, which had narrowed the black early, market premium, the black in, ter- in 2004, <laughs> right. widened from 45% in January 2005 to about 100% by early July. So um, this reflected the loosening of monetary policy in early 2005, as well as the declining availability of foreign exchange in the auction system. So all right. So by 2005, so this informal sector, the, the black market, it um, was 40% of the, the workforce. And according to the UN reports, the informal economy had become the main source of income for most of Zimbabweans. So at the beginning of uh, and then 2006, real estate interest rates were negative deeply negative and the parallel exchange rate to the u.s dollar was sitting at 135,000 zimbabwe dollars to one dollar that's a lot that's a lot Ooh, that is a lot i forget the peril i forget the uh what it was to uh the dove what was it to the rymark i have the number somewhere it was something ridiculous I was stupid too. It was super high. Um, all right. As the inflation rate edged toward the 50% per month threshold of hyperinflation, the inevitable erosion of inflation tax base worsened. At this point, pension fund assets were much were more or less eroded, and, the, so, and so the government turned to the banking system and searched for its funding. Around May 2003, any surplus or deficit held by a bank at the end of each day would incur massive economic penalties. Either way, given yearly inflation around 1,200% of the official estimates, even slightly imprecise liquidity management came with severe costs. In May, May, year-on-year inflation exceeded 1,000% for the first time. In order to conduct even a simple transaction, people had to carry large sums of currency in July 2006, a set of currency reforms termed Project Sunrise was announced in the RBZ Governor's Monetary Policy Statement. These were expected to alleviate this burden. Taking effect on August 1, 2006, the Zimbabwean dollar was replaced by a new Zimbabwean dollar at a ratio of 1,000 to 1. This new dollar was devalued against the U.S. dollar. And according to uh, Governor Gano of the RBZ, the effective removal of three zeros would have a positive psychological effect on people's reference points when comparing the relative strength of the local currency against regional and international prices as well as prices for goods and services which is funny a psycho a positive psychological effect with the effect of remove the removal of the three zeros um so when um when final money supply growth figures were released for December 2006, the annual money growth rate had risen by 
1416.5%. In an invert early February 2003, the RBC declared inflation illegal, announcing that any person caught raising prices <laughs> and or rages between March 1st and June 30th would be arrested and punished. <laughs> um, inflation is illegal. <laughs> inflation is illegal. If we don't raise your prices, then, you know, there's no inflation. There's no... uh. There's no inflation. Like, if only my grocery store didn't jack up my peanut butter $5, there would be no inflation. Fully gas prices just stayed at two thirteen. Remember when um, the gas uh, put, the oil puts last year went to negative rates? Yeah, yeah. And they had to, like, <laughs> they had to, like, pay. <laughs> or they, they had, had to like, pay the people who were buying the put options. <laughs> mm-hmm. they, they had to, they had, to uh the, the people who owned them had to pay <laughs> they lost it was they went negative which is one of the craziest things i've ever seen um so um so despite these measures in 2007 zimbabwe endured hyperinflation formerly because on month on month inflation reached 50.5 yeah, five four percent, and year on year, twenty two hundred percent. Whew! So we're getting on to the end of this. All right, wild roller coaster. Inflation reached four hundred thousand, seventeen thousand, eight hundred and twenty three percent in March. In just March. Then the ruling party lost three elections. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. Losing its majority in uh, the legislator um, for the first time. And then Mugabe actually loses his election. Mugabe is like one of the funniest dictators ever. Like, I mean, just like he has like style. Like he has like, like this that like weird African dictator swag, you know. <laughs> it's just Mugabe loses the election to his prime minister, and but um, he just forces him to drop out of the race. He's just like, ah, well, that doesn't matter. I'm still president. That's basically what oh. happens. There's more to this story. I don't know the full story, but allegedly Mugabe loses this election. He loses. I think, and he's just like, yeah, like I'm, I'm not gonna leave. You need you just just, um, just drop out. Um, but by July, shops were charging double the cash price for check transactions due to time delay in the clearing of the check. 
Meanwhile, bank withdrawals were limited to 100 billion Zimbabwe dollars, which was less than the cost of a loaf of bread. The RBZ introduced the Zimbabwe 100 billion dollar banknote in an attempt to affiliate the strain on the printing press. Hyperinflation was still being fueled by the banks, the, hyper, the RBC's quasi-fiscal activities, which had caused a rapid increase in the bank's deposits with the RBC and thereby rapid increases in local currency. Um, however, the printing of physical notes was unable to match the expansion of local currency. Uh, in the third quarter of 2008, real money demand and the parallel market exchange rates collapsed in response to the still accelerating inflation as a result by the end of the year. Reserve money declined to an equivalent of about $7 million, U.S. dollars. Um, in effect, the extreme hyperinflation left the local currency defunct as the economy dollarized in late 2008. Inflation is estimated to have peaked in September of 2008 at about 500 billion percent. From th that time, the pricing of goods and services shifted to foreign currency units, um, like you had mentioned earlier, the U.S. dollar and the South African rand. And mm -hmm. uh, the local currency virtually disappeared from circulation. Zimbabwe dollar transactions going through banks in the forms of checks and direct transfers has effectively ceased by January 2009. And uh, in December, the RBZ licensed about 1,000 shops to sell goods in foreign currency, claiming that this would be uh, would help businesses suffering from chronic shortages of foreign currency to import goods and spare parts. This was the first official record, first official recognition of Zimbabwe's unofficial dollarization. And in January 2019, or excuse me, 2009, the Minister of Finance gave legal tender status to the South African rand and U.S. dollar, completing Zimbabwe's official dollarization. The newly compiled U.S. dollar CPI for February 2009 showed a 3% month-on-month decline as the significant increase in utility prices was more than offset by a fall in tradable prices. Dollarization helped stabilize prices, improving revenue performance, and perhaps most importantly helped impose fiscal discipline on the authorities. There you have it, guys. There you have it. There you have it. So what are the key takeaways? One of the what key takeaways. The... <laughs> <laughs> what did we learn here? Well, uh, that economics is hard. <laughs> money doesn't make sense. No. So my buddy, my buddy, uh, he is like such a prick. And he... Will always just like bait me. He'll bait. He used to bait me on this all the time, and he baits everyone on this. And he's like, "Why don't we just print more money?" Like, I don't get it. He's like, "The economy just doesn't make sense. The economy just doesn't make sense. I don't get why we just don't print more money." And then you try to explain to us, like, "Yeah, but you know, you're saying people were indebted to other countries. Why don't we just not pay them back?" Like, why don't we just print more money and give everyone millions of dollars? And he's always saying that to bait you in. Like, he, he's not like a someone who, you know, is an economist or anything like that. But he like knows that you'll kind of trigger people like me. But allegedly, I don't. I just kind of laugh at it now. It's a joke. But now he, um, 
he one time said this to a guy who worked at the New York Federal Reserve. Like we were hanging out and there was somebody who was who worked for the New York Federal Reserve. So he kept mm-hmm. on saying this to this guy. And this guy was like, yeah, man, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't we do that? <laughs> like you're making a good point, man. <laughs> good point. He's like, and his mind was blown. He's like, you know, I never thought of it like that. We should just print millions of dollars and give to everyone. And this is somebody who works at the New York Federal Reserve. I don't. It's just astonishing. Um, but I guess you know my takeaways are that um, you know the the, um, you know, the land reform played a major role in its destruction of of, of the country's production base, and, and it was contributed to the inflation. And um, but you know the fiscal activities of the central bank were mainly responsible for the growth in the money supply, uh, which led to the inflation. And um, I think a lot of this was meant to uh, to uh, placate different grieving groups or groups. You know, I mean, these groups had grievance, like real grievances, you know, like it's um, when there's such inequality and we're talking about extreme inequality on racial terms. Like that's, it's going to lead to violence. Right. Um, and uh, I think those are, those are like the, I think the key takeaways, like the ideological government's use. I mean, they use inflation as a mechanism to promote their political agendas. And then they find somebody else to blame for rising prices caused yep. by the printing of money. That's and, right. And um, I think that's that's the key oh. thing. We're, we're seeing that now, you know, in the U.S., just to kind of wrap it back to the beginning, you know. Um, I think uh, we're, we're ripening the narrative to start pointing the finger at the industry when, in fact, it's the monetary policy that kind of started it all. Not to say that the industry is like... They're just so here, greedy. Right? You guys are so damn greedy. You need I mean, to be that's, selling that's your shit true. at a loss. <laughs> it's still true. I think the industry definitely takes advantage of a lot of things, up to and including like tax evasion. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's it doesn't start there. It just yeah, I the, agree. The government sets up the monetary policy and and sets up the climate by which that you know uh, industry can get greedy if they get greedy at all, and then they just fuck it up more by increasing the money supply and you know doing weird shit with the interest rates. And, you know, just generally undermining the confidence in in the value of the currency. And and I kind of want to talk a little bit about that for a second, because, you know, the one thing that we haven't covered here, and I want to I want to end with this, is the future currency in Zimbabwe and and perhaps, you know, future currency in general. Um, So, you know, there are some interesting and ingenious things that the Zimbabweans did and are still doing uh, alongside other African and developing nations um, during this crisis. And. You know, we, we talked at length about how, how inflation grew rapidly in Zimbabwe and what the government did to counter it. Um, you know, a couple of things was like re-denominating, tagging off a couple zeros like we were talking about, right? Uh, and yeah, I think in 2008, they did they did 10 zeros and then 12 zeros more in 2009. It was just ridiculous. It didn't work. Prices kept rising. So, you know, there wasn't enough money. There wasn't enough bills to go around. And then that's when the Zimbabweans and a bunch of entrepreneurs got kind of creative. So interesting point. I think you might've pointed this out. I forget if you actually said it or not, but the majority of uh, Zimbabweans don't have a bank account. 
as a matter of fact, this is kind of common in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So I think in advanced economies like the U.S., you know, we have like about a 90% like that has bank accounts. But in sub-Saharan Africa, that's like 20% maybe, right? Uh, and in Zimbabwe, despite the fact that they don't have bank accounts, they have super high transactions. And also, you know, of the ones that have bank accounts, balances are low and transactions are super high. So it just doesn't make bank locations or ATM machines super profitable because they're moving so much money so quickly and they're not gaining any money in it in the interest. And so as a result, Zimbabwe only had something like six and a half ATMs per 100,000 people in their country. And just for context, you can compare that to the United States. We have 174 ATMs per 100,000 people, right? So Zimbabweans basically lack the infrastructure to keep their money safe. Uh, and I'm using safe in air quotes here. Uh, or transfer it between people. They just don't have a, a lot of that infrastructure. And, and it makes it easy for you know criminals to do business, like black markets to arise. But it also just straight up dangerous to move money around in general. So like... As an example, if you worked in a city and you wanted to send money home to your family who lived out in the country, you'd actually physically need to travel to the country every time you wanted to do that with like a duffel bag full of money that, by the way, was quickly depreciating, right? Or you would have to pay somebody to do it for you, and obviously there's a risk of that getting stolen. The solution, though, is kind of genius. So Zimbabwe might not have a lot of ATMs, but they do have a lot of mobile phones. Something like 80% of Zimbabweans have a mobile phone of some kind, right? And a bunch of entrepreneurs got together and decided to set up these mobile payment systems. And it was super easy to get uh, widely adopted too because uh, Zimbabwe's telecoms are dominated by a monopoly company. I think it's called Safaricom and, and it's a Kenyan um, mobile network. Uh, and all of these like other, you know, uh, uh, like foreign national companies like T-Mobile and and things like that are all all set up all the infrastructure for it already. The idea is super simple though. So there are hundreds of thousands of these middlemen, right? These paid guys who are paid to take your money and put it into, you know, like a, like an account of some kind. So you give them the money and they deposit it into an account that's tied to your SIM card. And then you just literally text somebody money. Like you just send them a text message just like that. And you don't need a smartphone either like this works with just regular dumb phones that have SIM cards. So you just text them an amount of money. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, what's cool about that is that when you get sent money, you have access to that money, money, uh, with, right. And that, that ends up being tied to your SIM cards accounts worth of money. It's kind of like Venmo, but like lower tech. Right. Um, and, so since most of these, you know, Zimbabweans already had mobile phones and they already, you know, did the costly part, that's the setting up the infrastructure, right? The, the cell phone towers and all that stuff were already built. It was super easy for Zimbabwe's, you know, uh, people to pick this up and they picked it up pretty quick. Um, and, you know, they, they've been basically using a, like a form of Venmo or Zelle or whatever, like a lower tech version for quite some time now and it's actually pretty lucrative um something like 20 percent of the transactions that are done in zimbabwe are done through this method it's obviously not 
all of the transactions, not even the majority of the transactions, but it definitely eased a lot of this issue because now they're able to move money more quickly, more securely. And a lot of shops and stuff like that have the ability to just straight up pay via text message. Although uh, I read, uh, watched a funny video uh, where they were talking about this particular issue and and apparently like shopkeepers will roll their eyes if you have to text, if you have to pay with a text because it's kind of like, you know, back in the day when you had to write a check, right? And like, let's say you're standing in line in the, uh, in the grocery store and someone whips out their checkbook. You're like, oh fuck, this is going to take 15 minutes for you to write out this check and shit. So it's kind of like the same idea, but um, I think generally speaking, the technology behind it is kind of neat and the idea of, you know, r- removing the the problem of there just not being enough bills is super genius, right? Because none of this is, almost none of this is based on bills. It's just kind of like digital money. But, you know, today, uh, you know, to, as early as 2019, uh, you know, the Zimbabwean government, they reintroduced their currency again. Um, and it's already inflating and inflated by quite a lot. Uh, so the current president, Emerson, Jesus, Minagagua, Minagagua, Emerson Minagagua, he basically has right now a three-figure inflation rate under his belt, and he's now printing higher denomination banknotes, which is fucking stupid because they did this exact same thing 10 years ago, right? Like the exact same problem, uh, and they're just doing it again. Uh, so right now, in addition to these mobile pay applications crypto is being seriously considered um as a potential solve for you know this monetary issue and i know you know for you henry sometimes crypto can go over your head uh and i'm sure if sue is still listening he's probably you know jumping up and down about it um but think of it this way the problems that the zimbabwean government has right now running their monetary system is that they control the money supply and they also have the ability to print money whenever the fuck they want, right? And they're doing it again, right? So obviously, you know, causing some issues. With with cryptocurrency, it's impossible to just print more money. Coins like Bitcoin are valued very high, at least in part because there's a finite supply of it. And that number will never, ever grow. This is all you got. There's like, I don't know, 28 billion Bitcoins or something like that. And that's it. That's all there is. And so the value of them keeps going up because there's that finite number of them. You can't really mine any more of them. And so as people trade them and the demand for it goes up, so does the value. But you can't ever print more to devalue that currency, right? And that's that's one of the big problems that Zimbabwe has and is still having is that they just keep printing more money, which devalues the current currency. You can't do that with crypto. The other problem that you know, this poor monetary policy has, and it's arguably the biggest problem, is just the confidence of that currency in having value. Part of why, like, inflation in Zimbabwe is rising again is because the public isn't confident that their currency has any value, right? Because none of this is backed in anything real. We all have to agree that fiat currency has a inherent value. And if we don't agree, then that value goes down. If we do agree, that value goes up, right? But they don't have any, any, any confidence in these new Zimbabwean currency to actually have any value because of the last thing that I said. They just keep printing more of it, right? And if the government could just keep printing money or 
you know, fucking around with interest rates whenever the hell they want. That's not something that exactly inspires the Zimbabwean people to believe that their money is going to have any long-term value. And that's another thing that you just can't do with crypto, right? You can't, you can't mess with it in that respect. And so as a result, people are more confident that a crypto has value because no government can go toying with the numbers in, in the, you know, with this particular currency. I got a bonus for you. Crypto is secure and it's decentralized. So all the transactions, everything that happens are on these public ledgers. And those ledgers are all over the world. They're not controlled by a bank. They're not controlled by a government or by even an individual person. They're just like everywhere. That's what the blockchain is, right? And so all of the like currency is accounted for. So there's not just like money like disappears like it does here in the United States when we say, oh, I have no idea where $3 trillion went. Um, you know, it, it doesn't do that. And also no more money is printed into existence. So it's much more stable. So I actually think that, you know, if we're going to pull, if Zimbabwe is seriously going to pull out, I think they could be a really good use case for this. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, Zimbabwe, when they did those mobile payments, they kind of jumped over, you know, uh, setting up large banking infrastructure to have like multiple branches and checking accounts and all that shit with debit cards. They jumped over that and they went right to the mobile banking, right? Like pretty much immediately. I think they can jump that, you know, they, they definitely jump checks. They don't even fucking use that shit. Um, I think they can jump again and go right to crypto and they could be a really interesting case study for like how crypto could potentially solve for, you know, a lot of these really shitty monetary policies. Of course, the biggest challenge that crypto has isn't isn't like oh do people have the internet or oh do people have you know the ability or the understanding of how to use crypto it's the government right the government doesn't want to cede control over the monetary policy so you know they're just they'll they'll prevent it to the best of their ability but honestly this is this is a really good option for countries like Kenya who already have a crumbling monetary infrastructure anyway and that have no confidence in any currency that's set up by their central government. Well, you know, maybe maybe a good case study to look as far as um, economies in Africa. Maybe we should look at Botswana next because Botswana, yeah, mm -hmm. because they're a thriving economy. Um, so we can enter landlocked too. So it's it's um, maybe that could be a future episode uh, where we where we look at a thriving country and see what economic policies they have to to uh to uh not fall in these messes um but let's see it is an hour and 25 minutes in um i think we should wrap this thing up because i gotta get somewhere in a little bit <laughs> yeah sure but um all right <laughs> thanks everyone for listening to another episode of bro history um, if you like the show, make sure that you rate and review the podcast on Apple, on your Apple device. Um, so do that. And then share this podcast with your buddy. And um, listen to us next week. And if you really like us, you can join our Patreon. And get access to the Slack community where we uh, developed a real cool community. Anything else? Oh, man, I think that's good. All right, everyone. Peace. Peace.
What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.